Welcome to Behind the Scenes with Brian, the podcast covering everything from engineering, mining, and mine waste management to whatever else may be on our minds. Pop in your headphones and don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share. And now, here is your host, Brian Ulrich. This is Brian, and this is Behind the Scenes with Brian, and today I am joined by David Garofalo. David, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me on, Brian. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, we're hopefully in the winding down months of this COVID virus, and hopefully you're weathering it as well as anybody else could, and as well as it could be expected. Well, you know, I, I think I have. My family's all in good health, and I hope yours is as well. Uh, but I would say it certainly hasn't slowed down the capital markets, and we were able to launch a new royalty vehicle in the midst of the pandemic, literally from my home office, and IPO'd and raised $90 million U.S. And there's been a lot of capital markets activity um, in spite of the restrictions on our movements. Yeah, that, that's amazing. Yeah, and I'm in Denver, and I, I have the pleasure of working out of my home either my basement in my home in Denver or the loft in my cabin up in the mountains so it's it's a a decent experience for me and my family has definitely been well yeah thanks I'm glad to hear that well David I think a lot of people have heard your name because you've been with the industry and around the industry for quite a while but why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself your background your education Sure. Well, I, I'm a CPA by training. Um, back in the 80s, I started out with Deloitte's right out of business school um, in Toronto. And um, then was hired at a very junior position with a base metal company called Inmet Mining, which was taken over by First Quantum about a decade ago. And um, we were building mines in a variety of places while I was there. And I kind of learned the business from the ground up. We were building a copper mine in Turkey, a zinc mine in Tunisia, a gold mine in northwestern Quebec in Shibugamu called Troilus, um, uh, among others. And that really set the table for me to join Ignico in 1998 as CFO, just as Sean Boyd was uh, ascending to the CEO role. And I was there during the formative years uh, when we were building La Ronde, Lapa and Goldex in northwestern Quebec, Pinos Altos in Mexico, Kitala in Finland, Metalbank in, in, uh, in Nunavut. Um, and so we were prolific mine builders in the dozen years I was there and obviously learned a lot, raised a lot of capital um, through the ups and downs of the cycle. And that set me up to go and run Hut Bay, where we built three mines in the five and a half years I was there, including the large scale Constancia copper mine in Peru and Lalalor mine in North, northern Manitoba before I went over to take over at Gold Corp um, until its merger with Newmont in 2019. Yeah, so, uh, and you helped to make that merger uh, between Newmont and Gold Corp. Yeah, you know what, it was an interesting time. Barrick had just announced their merger with Rangold, and um, it was clear to us that unless we achieve scale quickly, um, that we'd be left behind. Um, And so we talked to a number of dance partners at the time and landed on Newmont, and uh, ultimately, created the world's biggest gold company by market cap and production. It was a $32 billion merger of two companies. Um, but uh, since then, um, Gold Corp shareholders have seen the value of their investment triple um, because 
one, because of the rise in the gold price after that, but also because of the significant re-rate um, that was achieved um, in a much broader, more diversified portfolio, um, high quality portfolio um, throughout the world. And uh, that re-rate actually caused Newmont to go from a distant second to Barrick in market cap to by far the biggest market cap company uh, on the mining side, gold mining side in the world. Yeah, amazing. It, it, as you well know, it wasn't that long ago that investors were not interested in investing investing in mining stocks. Um, and there was a lot of cry for mergers and acquisitions because it wasn't enough capital to go around. And there has been quite a few mergers in, in recent years. And uh, obviously, people are investing back in the mining community now. And, and you're company called Royalty Corporation is kind of at the top of the food chain there, uh, collecting investment money and, and, and turning around and investing it in mining properties. And it, yeah. It yeah, seems, yeah, it seems like you've had some pretty good success in that avenue. Yeah, well, you know, from a standing start a year ago, uh, we were a private company with just an idea. We had um, 17 royalties written on our former parent company's assets, Gold Mining Inc., um, that had been collected during the bottom of the cycle of 32 million ounces of equivalent gold reserves and resources within that portfolio. And we were royalties on all of them and used that as a foundation to IPO Gold Royalty back in March. And we raised $90 million US on the NYSE and then went about diversifying quickly. You know, we bought Ely Gold um, and doubled our size from a $200 million post-money valuation of the IPO to $400 million US. And then most recently, we announced a three-way merger with Abitibi Royalties in Golden Valley to get access to the royalty on the world's, or sorry, on Canada's biggest gold mine, um, Canadian Malartic. And that will see us double our size again from about $400 million US market cap to 800. And so we've achieved scale fairly quickly. Again, we IPO'd only six, seven months ago, and now we're at the top of what I would say is the sub $1 billion category of royalty companies. We've eclipsed Mavericks and a number of other of those players that were at the top of that food chain. And there's still lots of real estate between us and the category killers, you know, Franco Nevada, Wheat Precious Metals, Royal Gold. There's still a lot of market cap between uh, where we are and where they are and a lot of potential for re-rate as we continue to grow and diversify our portfolio. And we, we now have almost 200 royalties in the portfolio from the 17 we started at, exclusively focused in the Americas and almost exclusively focused on gold. And 90% of our metals exposure on the royalty side is in gold. Uh, a few percentage points in silver and a bit in copper as well, but we're gold focused and America's focused, which I think distinguishes us qualitatively from many of our competitors who tend to be more diversified on the metal side and certainly more diversified on the geographical side, you know, and taking on a lot more political risk. Yeah, so maybe you could follow that up by just saying, so you, you're you're uh, focused on the Americas and mostly in gold, so how come? Well, look, I, I think it's uh, uh, partly a function of circumstance. Um, gold mining's assets were exclusively in the Americas. They, they made a deliberate decision when they were formed um, over the last decade um, on um, on focusing on the Americas um, and, and they accumulated their assets uh, as such. Um, so that gives that foundational element in the Americas. Ely has been uh, almost entirely focused in Quebec and Nevada, which are the two best jurisdictions in the world 
to operate in um, empirically demonstrated or objectively demonstrated by the Fraser Institute, which rates them perennially number one and two for mineral potential, low political risk and low regulatory risk. So uh, we thought that was a good complementary fit to, to, um, to what we already had in the portfolio. And then um, uh, Abitibi and Golden Valley are, are almost exclusively focused in Quebec and they bring a generative model in Quebec. A lot of the royalties they generated, they've done so organically by staking expiration claims, farming out the properties and taking back royalties as they farm them out. So I think, um, uh, you know, those were the best targets that we saw complemented our, our portfolio. And uh, I think best positioned us for a re-rate on a combined basis. And, and to that end, you know, after we did the Ely deal, um, we saw our shares re-rate by almost 40% as a result of the, the deal, not just adding the two market caps together, but the lift in our stock price as a result of creating that scale and putting them together and making that quality uh, argument about the combined portfolio has allowed us to achieve that re-rate, that double bump, if you will, for Ely shareholders. And we see the same type of potential with Golden Valley and Abitibi as we combine those operations and we close that deal early in November. The other dynamic I think that's going to drive our performance is the fact that we graduated to the GDXJ a couple of months um, after our IPO back in March. And um, we will be re-rated on the GDXJ as a result of both the Ely deal and the Abitibi and Golden Valley deal. We'll see essentially a quadrupling of our weighting on that index when the re-rating occurs in December. So there's a lot of latent demand that's going to come from that, uh, that re-rating that will help hasten the re-rate that we've achieved by rescaling the company, uh, diversifying it, and, um, and again, staying focused on, on quality assets within the Americas. Uh, you mentioned the Fraser Institute, and I've, I've people have told me that they've got a political agenda, and I've, I've looked at a lot of their charts and graphs, and if they have a political agenda, I can't see it. Can have, have you come across any weaknesses in Fraser Institute's information that you've seen? No, look, they're an empirically driven, economically driven think tank. Um, so they're looking at hard data. Uh, they're looking at uh, things like um, discovery potential, exploration potential in those jurisdictions. They're looking at um, uh, timelines to uh, development uh, for greenfield projects, the regulatory environment, how long it takes relative to other um, jurisdictions. Uh, they're looking at um, uh, risks of expropriation, tax increases and whatnot. And what they're saying is, um, you know, um, among other jurisdictions, Nevada and Quebec are the best in the world from all of those criteria. And it's, it's, it's very, very objective. Um, so if they have a, a political bent, I don't see it in this type of analysis. Um, in yeah. this particular study, they do a lot of economic studies, but in this particular study, it's, it's based on hard facts and data. Yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of what I thought too. So it's, it's good to have some confirmation of that. So David, you, you have 200 uh, mining properties in your portfolio. What do you look at when you're investigating, investing in one of those properties? Well, we start with the geological model. And if you look at our board management, uh, you'll notice that it's very deliberately skewed to technical strength and depth. 
Um, you know, in addition to my my background and my development operation, um, Alan Harris on our board. Alan um, is a prolific mind builder in his own right. He was my successor at, at Hag Bay CEO. He was my yeah. chief operating officer there, and he's 35 years as a metallurgical engineer, so brings a, a wealth of experience um, and technical depth to the board. In addition to that, uh, we have um, Alistair Still, who came over with me from Gold Corp. Um, Alistair was a senior uh, operations manager in the Porcupine District in Timmins, Ontario. We moved him down to Argentina to build Cerro Negro for us, geologist by training. Um, Sam Ma came out of SSR, um, and Sam is our VP of Project Evaluations, mining engineer, has been both on the operating side at SSR, but also was at uh, Wheat and Precious Metals during its formative years, 10 years there, doing project evaluations. So he understands the royalty and the operating side of the, the spectrum quite well. Um, and, uh, you know, beyond that, Amir Adnani, who's the founder of Gold Mining, is on the board as well. So what that board gives us is a clear-eyed view of the underlying risk of the business, understanding how operators think, um, understanding the risk inherent in the development, but also being able to do that bottom-up due diligence required to make an accurate and honest assessment of the risk, the potential geologically, because at the end of the day, what we're trying to provide our shareholders with is leveraged exploration upside uh, beyond what's already defined in the reserve and resource. Uh, that's the beauty of the royalty business is you get that leverage as opposed to buying physical gold. Um, and so we want to make sure we have a good assessment of that. So I, I think that's really what distinguishes us is that technical depth. And that group, which has a lot of seniority and beyond there, them, there's Warren Gilman, who runs Queens Road Capital, 30 years in the business. Ian Telfer, who's the chair of advisory board, a prolific um, company builder in the mining space for many decades. Um, you know, what it gives us is access. Um, we can start to look at opportunities before they become available in auction processes because of the relationships that we have. And that certainly was the case in acquiring Ely. That was a bilateral negotiation. It wasn't an auction process. It was through a relationship that I got to know Trey Wasser and Jerry Bachman, the, the co-founders of Ely. Uh, same thing with Abitibi and Golden Valley. I got to know Jimmy Lee, uh, their biggest shareholder, um, a pulp and paper uh, guy based out of Dubai. Um, uh, got to know him through a relationship we had through our board as well and, and had a bilateral negotiation with him and, and getting that transaction underway. We bought royalties on Monarch's properties in Northwestern Quebec, the Beaufort Restart, which will start production in January. Again, through my long relationships that I've had in the Abitibi region where I've been building and operating mines since the 1990s. I think that's um, that's really what's important to distinguishing ourselves from from the rest of the pack and that um, that sub one billion dollar market cap category. Yeah, yeah. So, David, me being a tailings guy, I've always been curious about somebody in your position and how closely you might look at a corporate tailings management standard before investing. You know, it's an interesting point. So when I was running um, uh, Gold Corp, we launched what was called uh, uh, Towards Zero Water Initiative. And um, uh, and uh, the thought process behind that was the biggest impediment to new mine development or even expansions of existing mines is water consumption, uh, the scarcity of water uh, and the perceived scarcity of water around the communities. And if you look at um, mine sites, one of the most water intensive parts of a mine site is the tailings facilities. Yeah. So we were looking for ways 
to drive down water consumption at the tailing side. And so we were looking at things like dry stack tailings. We were looking at recycling tailings and, and recycling water. We were starting to measure our recycling rates at, at the mine site and tailings were a big driver of that. So uh, I don't put myself out as, out as a tailings expert like yourself, Brian, but I, I would say that uh, I recognize the importance of adopting new technologies uh, on the tailings management side uh, to not only drive down water consumption, but also to destigmatize the mining business because, um, you know, it's rare when things go wrong at tailing sites, um, but it's like um, the airline business. Um, it's rare when there's a, an airline crash, but when there is one, it's always catastrophic. And that's yeah. the case with tailings, uh, impoundment breaches and whatnot. So in dams fail, dam failures. So um, to the extent we can get out of traditional tailings management and to, to less water intensive, and less civil work intensive solutions, the better we are going to be as an industry. So we do look at that risk um, when we're looking at it from a royalty perspective as well. We want to make sure we associate ourselves with operating partners that have high ESG standards. And we've turned down more than a few royalty opportunities and simply didn't bid because we didn't have a comfort level with um, the ESG standards of, of the operator. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah. That, that, the, the comparison with the airlines is really interesting because when a air uh, a jet crashes and there's a tragedy, their stock value is not usually affected. Yeah, but uh, it it can deeply affect a, a mining company when their tailings fails. And I I wonder why the disparity. You know, it's just maybe there's no answer for that but it's interesting yeah look i think that airlines are an absolute necessity day-to-day -day necessity for for many of us so people i think are better able to do the calculus here and think of what the underlying risk is to themselves and i think it's it's negligible uh, but with a, a mine site, there's a, a degree of separation from most of us and mine sites. I mean, we consume copper, we consume gold, we consume zinc, but there's so much um, separation between the, the, the production of that metal to our actual consumption. There's no transparency there for the day-to-day -day consumer. They just don't feel it. And they say, well, mining's bad, you know, uh, without understanding the implications of the supply chain of our economy you know, because of that, you know, degree of separation between production and, and actual consumption. Whereas, you know, it's, it's, it's much more real uh, on the airline side, you know, we all consume, uh, you know, we all consume airline services on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and it, it's maybe even drastically different with the airlines because it, in, in some cases it's the the plane manufacturer that gets hit rather than the people flying the airplane. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You, you know, one of the things that was a little bit disappointing with the Newmont Gold Corp uh, merger was Gold Corp was pursuing some really unique tailings management practices, uh, like a blended tailings and waste rock. And I, I, I don't know that that's been completely dropped, but. It was disappointing because I think Gold Corp was making some real strides in that direction. No, certainly, and and uh, I think the industry though is is starting to make strides. Generally speaking, I, I think um, uh, you know, for example, dry stack tailings is rapidly being scaled. Um, yeah, the filter presses are getting bigger and bigger. Um, you know, FL Schmidt in particular has has rolled out um, 
I think at an iron ore facility in Western Australia, 70,000 ton a day dry stack tailings process there. So um, it, it gives me a lot of optimism about the potential of driving down our water consumption as an industry and, and um, transitioning away from traditional tailings impoundments. Yeah, yeah, that, that's great. And that, that kind of goes along with, uh, when you, I'm not sure if it's your goal or your corporate goals to have sustainable mining and zero net emissions. And I think those are something that the general public can really get their arms around. Well, there certainly is a drive um, with our operating partners to effectively achieve that over time. And and our job is not to drive that day to day. We're, we're providers of capital, if you will, as a royalty company, but to ensure that we associate ourselves with companies and operators that, that have that kind of initiative and objective to drive themselves to net zero emissions. Yeah, well, I was working recently with a mining company who uh, wishes to use electric and autonomous vehicles to take their filtered tailings from the plant to the stack. And I thought that that was pretty forward thinking. Yep. Yeah. So, David, uh, why, why would a person like me want to invest in your company rather than in a, a specific mining company? Well, it's an interesting question and we're at a really um, interesting point in the cycle um, because um, of the significant underinvestment we've seen in new mine capacity over the last half a dozen years or so. You know, remember coming out of the credit crisis 10 years ago, gold was ripping through 1900, copper and zinc were doing very well because of the super cycle that China was in the midst of. And we saw a lot of investment in new mine capacity and that drove up input costs dramatically. It undermined the leverage proposition investors were looking at. And if you bought a mining equity back then, it under actually underperformed the commodities. You know, gold was up 40, 45% of the time. Uh, mining equities on average were up maybe 15 to 20%. So you might as well have just bought the physical. The, the royalty companies actually outperformed in that environment because um, as, as a royalty company, you get that top line exposure exposure to the increase in the gold price, exposure to increases in reserves and resources, but without the underlying operating cost risk, because it's all top line exposure. And so the royalty companies actually outperform the commodity by twofold over that period of time. And I'd say we're back into that cycle again, uh, because of the underinvestment we've seen over the last half a dozen years as companies got through that hangover from 10 years ago by deleveraging and paying back dividends and buying back stock and repairing their balance sheets and the like. They haven't invested in exploration development, but they're going to have to do out of existential necessity now. And, you know, we're at incentive prices for copper and zinc and, and gold right now. We're, we're seeing all-time highs on the base and the precious side are close to them. And so I think um, because of the need to reinvest back into production, which is declining in both the gold and base side, we're going to see a significant wall of capital go back into mine development again. And so I do think there's going to be input cost inflation. And I think it's going to be far worse than what we saw 10 years ago, because 10 years ago, we didn't have inflation in the general economy. Today we do. And it's not the headline numbers that we're seeing in CPI, five, 6%. It's double digit because yeah. the reality is those headline CPI baskets, they exclude things like food, energy, and housing. Well, that's virtually where all of our expendable dollars go. <laughs> yeah. And excluding that is disingenuous at best. Yeah. The reality is we are experiencing double digit inflation. 
And so that's going to drive input cost inflation, as will the need to reinvest back into the business. So I would say if you want to buy gold and invest in gold, which I think uh, has significant merit, given all the quantitative easing and the low interest rates, uh, the debasement of currencies is going on on a global coordinated basis, I think gold is going to be a very accurate barometer of the inflation that we're going to be experiencing for, for quite a while, and it's going to go up dramatically. You want to be invested in something that provides you optimum leverage to that gold price increase. And I think the wealthy companies have been empirically demonstrated that they, they do that in a rising gold price yeah. environment with rising inflation. Yeah. A, a few years ago, there was a real buyer's market for, for mines and Waterton, I know, went out and acquired quite a few properties, uh, in some cases, to uh, make them attractive enough so some other buyer would come along, and in some cases, to actually operate the mines. You've certainly got the talent and experience on board. Do you ever see yourselves doing things like that? No, I mean, look, I think uh, royalty companies need to be focused on royalties. Um, it's an entirely different risk profile in the development and operation of mines because you're then exposing yourself to not only execution risk, but also operating cost inflation. And so it really undermines that investment thesis that the, you buy royalty companies for is that top line exposure, exposure to um, uh, exploration success because the royalties are obviously on the entire property, not on just the existing reserve and resources and insulating you from that operating capital cost inflation risk. I think that's really why you buy a royalty company. And if you start to dilute that strategy, what's and we've seen examples of that. And if you look at Franco Nevada the first time before it merged into Newmont, they bought Midas and they yeah. tried to operate that. And ultimately that led them running into Newmont's arms. Mm. And I think if you talk to Pierre Lassonde, who I know well, yeah. he would tell you that was a valuable lesson for them when they created the second, second incarnation of Franco Nevada, which has been a, a roaring success because they've been studiously focused on just royalties and not yeah. trying to be operators. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I yeah, I, I can buy into that. Yeah, that, that sounds, uh, sounds, sounds like a good avenue to go down. So David, you've done pretty well for yourself over the years, not just with the, the mining uh, works itself, but financially, you, I, I wouldn't say you're build your own rocket ship wealthy, but you're probably um, get a ride on somebody else's rocket ship wealthy. And I was just wondering if if you could give any career advice to people, especially people just kind of early in their development. What would you tell them? You know, generally with the mining industry, but not not strictly only the mining industry. Well, I would say um, for, for anybody uh, from every, any subject matter expertise, having a financial training is extremely important. And mm. I've said this to the mining engineers and the geos. If you want to be a, a C-suite executive, ultimately in the business, uh, you want to understand how the business is run financially. Um, at the end of the day, mining is a business like any other business. So we have to make money. We have to re return um, reasonable uh, or generate reasonable returns on the invested capital. and and understanding how the dynamics of that is extremely important. Having that subject matter expertise, like a mining engineer with an MBA is gold in my view. Um, and, and, and many times I've helped finance education for subject matter experts um, in our business to set them up for C-suite management positions. And so 
having that broad array of experience, both technical and financial is important. I came at it from the opposite perspective. I came from a financial background and I had to learn the technical aspect of the business. And fortunately, I had very, very good mentors, whether it was Richard Ross back um, in the day when I was at InMet, Sean Boyd and Eve Shirkus at Ignico, um, who exposed me to project development um, from doing feasibility work on the projects to ultimately going to tender for major contracts. Uh, really understanding how a mine's built from the ground up um, was extremely important for me to acquire the technical expertise I needed to, to build and operate mines um, you know, from a C-suite position. Yeah, and I think you just answered the question that I didn't ask is, why are there so many people at the top of the industry that come from a finance background? And so I, I think the two go hand in hand. If If you've got the smart to also get your arms around the technical side, then the chances of you rising to the top are a lot better. Yeah, look, it's a very capital intensive business and understanding, um, you know, the, the risks and rewards um, around those types of investments um, is extremely important um, to convince investors to make those capital allocation decisions. Um, so it's, it's not enough to, to be an expert in any particular field, it's, it's really important to understand how all of the pieces in the puzzle come together. It's almost like 3D chess, um, to, to use another metaphor. It's, it's a lot of moving pieces, uh, both financial and technical, and understanding how they all uh, come together is extremely important element to getting projects from concept to execution. Yeah. David, we've covered a lot of information today. I really appreciate you coming on here and generously sharing your time with us. I was wondering if you had any parting words of wisdom or key takeaways. And I know the financial training is probably a major key takeaway, but do you have anything else on top of that? Well, well look, you know, stick it out. This is a cyclical business. And, and if you try to time your entry into this business on uh, trying to time the cycle, you're probably not going to succeed. <laughs> you're going yeah. to miss the cycle inevitably. And that's true with mind development. You know, you, you can't time mind development to just hit the peak of the cycle and think you're going to make your money and get out. You have to stick it out um, to, to have any success in, in any industry, I would say, but in this industry in particular, given the cyclicality, you have to be in it for the long haul because um, um, it, it's almost as important. I think it's, it is as important to have uh, good relationships and good networks as it is to have good assets. You need both in order to be successful in the business and, and be in it for a long period of time, recognizing that cyclicality. Yeah, uh, the, the cycles can be uh, giant killers for sure in more than one way. Exactly. Yeah. David, I really appreciate you coming on here and uh, sharing your time with us. Uh, one of the main reasons I have this podcast is make, to make myself a little bit smarter. And you've you've helped me in that regard today, so I thank you for that. Ryan, thank you very much. It was a great interview. Yeah, absolutely, and I hope uh, the rest of your day and the rest of your week goes really well. All right, thank you. you Thanks, too. David. Well, that's it. I'm Brian, and this is Behind the Scenes with Brian. Until next time, keep on rockin'.